0: The North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA as we Americans call it, is very much in the news of late, primarily because President Trump has decided to make good on what he famously called the single worst trade deal that the United States has ever approved. Trump's assessment, like so many of his statements, isn't quite the fact he'd like it to be. In study after study, economists have found that NAFTA's impact on the U.S. economy ranges from relatively insignificant to mildly beneficial. So as the media follows the negotiations and the talking heads talk, we once again find ourselves in the welter of not knowing what to believe. What we need, what it seems we always need of late, is someone we can trust to clarify the situation. Someone who bases their analysis on facts, on research, on evidence. Someone who cares not only about the truth of the matter, But who also has a moral compass we can admire today i interview alicia galvez author of the new book eating nafta trade food policies and the destruction of mexico she is this person she approaches nafta with a wide and precise lens examining not only the economics of the agreement but also its impact on public health social welfare agricultural practices, migration patterns, government policy, and so many other considerations that get overlooked when the focus gets narrowed to economics. She looks across the border and at the border itself, so we can understand how the lives of the Mexican people have changed in the 20 years since NAFTA began. Galvez shows us that NAFTA is indeed a terrible deal, but in all of the ways that Trump doesn't and seemingly can't. She offers us an analysis guided by rigor, insight, thoroughness, and, above all, compassion for the lives of the very people that NAFTA has destroyed. Alicia Galvez, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So you are the author of Eating NAFTA with a subtitle of Trade, Food Policies, and the Destruction of Mexico. And one of the things that's amazing about this book is the scope that you are going from. It's a book that contains views of high-end, haute cuisine, up against international trade policy, up against public health concerns, that also includes profiles of people in their everyday lives. Could you tell us something about the origin of of where this project ga- came from? Um, because it's it's led you in so many directions. And I think one of the pleasures of this interview will be seeing just how all the facets of the book and its argument come together. But, but where did it start? What's the origin of the project? What were you seeing?
1: Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for, for your attention to the book, and it's really wonderful to, to have this conversation with you. I um, was became interested in these topics from a sort of unusual angle because I'm not a trade analyst. I am not an economic anthropologist. I am someone who's studied migration for the last 20 years, and because of that, I've been attuned to how the lives of the people that I've been working with in Mexico and the United States have been transformed over the last two decades of NAFTA. And because of that, I was able to see a palpable shift in recent years, in which people who, 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 who were left behind, people who did not migrate, uh, started to experience some of the same Um, Dietary assimilation is one of the ways that we refer to it. Um, Shifts toward an American way of eating, even though they never left their home communities in Mexico. Um, And I also started to see that they had the health problems that go along with that uh, diet, which is based more on industrialized foods than it is on core whole food ingredients. Um, and that began to really disturb me because in my prior work, I noticed that a lot of people migrated, um, in very good health and that the United States tended to wear down some of their healthful practices while people back in the home communities, uh, had really good diets and really good nutrition, oftentimes migration, um, led to sort of a decline. And I started to see that you didn't need to migrate anymore to have that decline. And that's what got me curious about what had happened to the food system after NAFTA. So,
0: so what is the portrait that you saw? What were, what were the food ways that were in place before NAFTA comes online on January 1st in 1994? When you say, you know, there were these healthful ways of eating, what was the portrait that we start with?
1: Yes. Well, in, most rural communities, uh, the basic diet was centered around corn and what I call, not just me, but what is called the milpa diet, which is corn, beans, beans squash and chiles being grown in the same plot of land. It's a very sustainable way of growing food. It's very um, interwoven in a, in a way that replenishes the soil, that doesn't require a huge amount of irrigation or artificial chemical inputs. Um it's nutritionally healthful, uh, corn and beans together provide a really excellent source of protein, um, really diverse kinds of nutrients that are very sound and have sustained populations for thousands of years. Um, and that way of eating that way of producing food and the kinds of food preparation that go with it and, and eating that go with it, um, have, persisted through many waves of colonization and modernization um even though the spanish tried to get people to stop eating corn and start eating wheat for example um we still saw people holding on to that milpa way of eating in many many communities most communities throughout mexico but uh with nafta we've seen the most dramatic shift um and it really has spelled uh The end of of this way of eating for many rural people. Um, It's no longer quite as possible to produce food in that way or to um, access food that's produced in that way in the general market. And so this has been a real shift since NAFTA.
0: So we're going to start, I think, moving into how NAFTA created those structural changes and limitations. But if you could just so so that we have the contrast in mind that comes up in the book in several different ways. What does the portrait of eating look like now?
1: Yes. Well, unfortunately, uh, Tortilla consumption has declined. Uh, we see a lot of people no longer eating um, corn, beans, squash, chiles um, in the same way or as a, the same component or a proportion of their diet. Instead, we see a real rise in the consumption of uh, sugar-sweetened beverages, ultra-processed foods, uh, what we call kind of hyper-industrial foods. Um that are made in factories that have a, an indefinite shelf life um, that are oftentimes engineered by chemists in a lab trying to maximize um, the way that they interact with our, with our receptors for salt and fat and sugar. Um, And, Mexico is now number one in consuming instant noodles, for example, in the world. Um, So people have uh, this incredible access, availability, affordability of these really um, not very good quality uh, food sources, um, along with um, a decline in the availability of their traditional food sources.
0: So, so we have this this terrible problem. Um, it's one that we've also seen in, in its own version in the, here in the United States, um, and and NAFTA, as you explain, is at the heart of it. And there are all these narratives and stories about NAFTA, and I think that that. Part of the interest of the book is that you you take some prevailing assumptions about particularly the success of NAFTA, uh, mm-hmm. which even I realize in our current media climate is up for debate. There are other stories circulating mm-hmm. around, um, but I wonder if if you could take us back to that that moment. I mean, you know, it goes back to Reagan starting to get this thing set up and, and the various. Uh, you know deals and and negotiations that were taking place but but what was the the hope the original intention
1: right well nafta was a product of a set of ideas that was that really reached its its apex um in that time period, in the, it, it's, we can sort of see it, you know, when uh, Reagan and Thatcher kind of looked around the globe and said there is no alternative. Um, they were ushering in um, a, an age of, of neoliberalism, of globalized capitalism, in which progress was seen to rest on um, hyperindustrialization, uh, foreign direct investment and the lowering of any sort of barriers to um these globalized uh, processes of production uh distribution marketing consumption etc um Mexico for its part had a long history of seeing um industrialization and modernization of its agriculture sector as the pathway to prosperity both more progressive and more conservative uh govern- governing um am- administrations saw um consolidation and, and modernization of the agricultural sector as the pathway to modernity and prosperity. Um, very rarely did anyone give much uh, respect or uh, support or credence to the small scale producers. Um, we really see only with the regime of Lázaro Cárdenas, who was the one of the early presidents after the revolution um, who really saw the small scale producer as being a hero, um, contributing to Mexican modernity. But the rest of the time we see this push towards um, greater consolidation and, and industrialization of all of these sectors. Um, so because of that, when Salinas was the president of Mexico, who was elected in 88, he um, came into power, he and his Harvard-educated e- econo- economist cabinet um, really wanted to de de-peasantize, depeasantize the countryside. They wanted to um, move people from agricultural, small-scale agricultural production into industrial occupations, whether in manufacturing or industrial agriculture. Um, and that was the pathway forward for them. And they saw that only being possible through foreign direct investment and they went first to Europe trying to see if they could get a deal there. Um, There wasn't much interest and they ended up um, finding interest with the U.S. and Canada. Um, The U.S. didn't really care much, to be frank, about NAFTA. It didn't see it as um, something that would mean much to the US economy. Um, it was always a deal between unequals in which Mexico kind of had to lay out way more on the table in order to even get the US to, to talk. Um, and because of that, uh, Mexico agreed to some really um, really uh, sinister trade-offs. And one of those trade-offs was the idea that uh, a half million people would be expected to be displaced from the countryside um, as sort of an initial collateral effect of NAFTA. Um, What they didn't anticipate was that there would be a half million people displaced every year for the next 15 years, um, or rather, sorry, rather a million people, contributing to about 10% of the population of Mexico residing in the United States at the peak of Mexican migration, which started leveling off when we had our economic crisis in 2008. Um, That large scale rampant, um, displacement from the countryside uh, just was, was tragic and, and violent for many people. And a lot of the people uh, who came from Mexico to New York, where I live, um, were precisely economic refugees from those shifts that NAFTA brought um, to their rural communities.
0: So I, I'm going to ask a, a naive question. Yes. Why would you want to depopulate the countryside?
1: The idea was that this was unproductive, that it was inefficient. Um, All of this is sort of framed within a logic that I take a lot of time to try to debunk in the book, which is the logic of comparative efficiency. Um, The idea is that if... uh, somebody else does something more efficiently than you do, you should let them do it. And you should dedicate yourself to whatever it is that you do best. And so within the logic of comparative efficiency, Mexico looked around uh, at its own domestic economy and said, we don't grow corn very efficiently. We maybe grow three tons per hectare, whereas in the US, it's 10, 15, 20 tons per hectare. So the US should be doing the corn growing and Mexico can do other things with that productive capacity. So every person who stopped growing corn and started doing something else was seen as a quote unquote win in this economic model. Um, I debunk that because there are a lot of, there are a lot of uh, assumptions and problems with the logic. One is efficiency is even in the most basic economic sense, it's a ratio. Um, It's a, we look at both what goes into um, a, a product an economic process and what comes out. So Mexican, um, Rural farms may not produce the number of tons per hectare that Iowa does in corn, uh, but there's a lot less input. Um, in Iowa, you might have a million dollar tractor. Um, you might have a whole administrative office, um, that's dedicated to maximizing the government subsidies and administering them. Um, you have, uh, the chemicals, um, the irrigation, um, the copyrighted, patented seeds that are have to be bought every year because they're sterile and can only be used once. In Mexico, you have a completely self-perpetuating, sustainable uh, model, and in, in the small-scale rural agriculture. Where seeds are not an intellectual property, they're rather traded and passed on season after season. Um, they're micro adapted to the climate so that they don't require inputs of chemicals and they don't require artificial irrigation. And they certainly don't require a million dollar tractor. Um, they grow in uh, canyons and uneven plots that no tractor could could you be used for. Um, and so even in just in terms of, you know, ma- efficiency is a strictly mathematical formula. I'm not a mathematician, but I can see that a lot is going in, in order to get those 20 tons of corn out. Um, and if very little is going in to the three tons that are emerging from the Mexican, uh, small scale, farm, um, it could still be efficient, right? Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is that, um, there's a false equivalency that's drawn that corn is corn. And if we look at the kind of corn that's grown in the United States, something like 90% of the corn in the United States is from two different species, um, that are an industrialized, uh, race of corn that's been developed, um, by scientists to be very high starch. It's actually lower protein than heirloom varieties of corn. And it um, is designed to be used with these chemical inputs. Um, in Mexico, we have uh, many dozens of heirloom varieties of corn that have been developed over millennia um, by people seeking various different qualities, taste, uh, texture, Uh, resistance to drought, um, ability to withstand wind, um, ability to, uh, grow in very specific conditions. Um, not to mention it's higher protein, higher fiber, less starch. Um, it's corn that's really uniquely, uh, useful if you're planning to eat your corn directly, if you're planning to grind it and make tortillas or tamales out of it. Um, the industrial corn that we grow in the United States is good for making ethanol. It's good for uh, producing the starches and animal feed and corn syrups and sugars that go into industrialized food processing. You can't eat it directly. It's actually not edible in its raw form. So it's not an equivalent process. But unfortunately, Mexican policymakers decided that Because the U.S. was so efficient in growing corn, Mexico could just buy corn from the U.S., stop growing corn, and displace its people into these other sectors. Um, In my view, this is a really uh, sinister bargain that was made.
0: Well, you see it as the victimization of the working class and the poor.
1: Yes. Yes. Um, Because so many people um, were displaced and not not seen as really mattering, um, in the economic sense, right. They were seen as sort of, um, replaceable, displaceable. Um, we see that we see so many millions, um, coming across, uh, to the U S to work in, in sectors where they are also, um, made to experience a lot of, uh, precarity, a lot of vulnerability, um, not given, um, the the ability to move freely, uh, to, to secure visas, um, in order to do the kinds of work that are available. Um, so we see this incredible precarity on both sides of the border, people who migrate and people who don't migrate. Um, and we see also this, um, rise in diet related illness. So it's almost as though, uh, Mexican policymakers were selling, Uh, stomach share, as I say in the book, kind of uh, slices of of the Mexican appetite um, on the global market, right? Making um, hyper consumption a model for economic development, Um, not just meeting the food needs of its population and sustaining the viability and health of its population, which is, you know, obviously something that governments have historically needed to do and um, been held accountable for doing. But rather um, turning Mexican appetites into uh, something on that auction block that could be, um, you know, sold off uh, to global corporate um, entities.
0: Can you can you tell us that's that's such a a powerful observation? And can you tell us what that would that would look like? And what do I ask? So when you say something like the government creates a systemic and economic choice in which Mexican appetites are for sale. What does that look like on the ground to the people that you were seeing?
1: Yeah. Well, what it looks like on the ground, um, and I don't know if you have all day, but (laughs) we could talk about, um, you know, really micro level, um, decisions that have been made to favor the expansion of consumption, um, even where there isn't an expansion of other kinds of empowerment, right? So consumption is one kind of empowerment, right? We even see, um, you know, when we look back at 19th century um, analyses of, of, of labor and capitalism, such as Marx, where um, he wrote about the, you know, the ability or the dignity of, of being able to, to consume um, we see this expansion um, happening today in a way that is not pegged to greater economic empowerment. And so the rates of poverty have not budged. Um, we see burgeoning inequality. Um, we see people um, not being able to necessarily get secure employment or overcome the precarity and the, and the physical displacement that internal migration and external migration have caused but, everyone is able to consume with the way that these um, hyper-industrialized food products have proliferated to every single corner of the country. Um, So rural communities that were sort of considered worthless um, in an economic sense by corporations historically, they didn't bother um, trying to get their products um, into them historically. Um, Now every community has uh, is part of these global distribution networks of these, um, you know, snacks and beverages, um, and hyper-industrialized foods that are, that are so ubiquitous. Um, even the poverty mitigation programs on the part of the federal government no longer address health, um, or, or, food insecurity as a, as a health issue or as a poverty issue. They're addressed as, um, in a way that, that basically puts, um, cash into people's hands. Um, not, uh, you know, there's a lot of good progressive policies that, that see, you know, putting cash in people's hands as, as profoundly empowering. But in this case, when it's coupled with this destabilization of, um, some of the historically robust systems that Mexico had for sustaining, um, its food system and sustaining access for, both farmers to get to consumers and consumers to get to farm products, we see that basically people have cash that's only useful in these, uh, new convenience stores, um, and small, tiendas, these little stores, um, that are, you know, really sponsored by Coke and Pepsi. Um, and the only thing sold in those places are these, um, you know, sodas and and snack packages, um, and other kinds of industrial foods. Uh, So it's really making people able to consume in a way that helps line the pockets of the corporations, but doesn't enable people to access the foods that culturally, historically, um, socially, in terms of health, are the the foundation um, for Mexican food culture.
0: So for all intents and purposes, all you're really able to do is buy junk.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And you have the cash to do it, even if you're not employed in the formal sector. Right. So there's just this expansion of of buying power as though that were the equivalent of, of real empowerment or real insertion into the economy. Um, yeah.
0: Well, So so part of your your investigative lens right is that the and yet this is not seen as a public health crisis or not to the extent that it should instead what happens is these these persons who only have the opportunity to buy highly addictive food um and don't have access to the traditional foods that have sustained them for generations that, that this is their problem that they've made a bad choice okay. right
1: Exactly. We've seen a concerted effort over decades by the corporations to, um, what they call externalize, um, the negative consequences of their products, um, to basically say that if you, if you have diabetes, it's not because of sugar or soda consumption in itself. It's because of a lack of moderation. It's because of a lack of discipline, um, that these are products that are, that are, um, you know, good and fun and, um, that it's one's own, um, discipline or, or decision whether to consume them. Um, they've learned from the tobacco playbook, right? They're trying to avoid the day of reckoning that tobacco had when when it became unsustainable to deny the toxicity of their products. Um, And so they've been really working in a concerted way for decades to try to make even people who have diabetes and other um, of these chronic diseases uh, feel guilty that if they just, um, you know, consumed in a different way or exercised in a different way that they wouldn't be sick Um, without any sort of systematic analysis of how the entire food system has changed around them, how the choices are not really choices um, that they're constrained by a market that is interested in profits, not in health um, and by policymakers who are increasingly, and we see this in the U S as well, increasingly um, engaged in a, you know, revolving door relationship with industry, um, NAFTA, um, global, neoliberal capitalist formations really favor um, deregulation. Um, they favor um, the government getting out of the way of of private enterprise and so there's less and less oversight, there's less and less um, accountability for these things Um, and even less conversation within um, government policy circles about what the responsibility for health might be
0: So when you look at the the current discussion of NAFTA and all the pundits and the media and everything that's taking place, I mean, to my ear, even though it seems as though everything's up in the air, the, the terms of the debate are still the ones that, that you're seeing is highly mm-hmm. problematic and damaging and ultimately violent. It's still about development. It's still about markets. It's still about trade. Um,
1: Absolutely it's still what? about profits first. It's
0: all about profits. So, so what are you seeing it in our moment? In, in fact, I'll just say this, I'm going to ask you an impossible question. And, um, and one approach to this interview, I was just going to say, Alicia, would you, would you please help us clear the <laughs> the blinders from what's going on right now and walk us through it? I think you would be the, the perfect person to do that, but the book is so good. We have to, to turn to that. But, but what are you seeing in the discussion of NAFTA right now that the, we're missing.
1: Um, I'll try. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think uh, I think there's a real um, false narrative that's been constructed, and the false narrative um, that circulated both, not only by by Trump when he was a candidate, but also by Bernie Sanders, was that NAFTA um, is bad for the American worker, um, and Trump. Developed the parallel line of argument that Mexico has been winning at the expense of the American worker, right? So this idea that somehow the U.S. is losing and Mexico is winning, um, this false narrative blinds us, and it might actually be a deliberate effort to keep us blind from the reality that working people, everyday people in all three countries of of NAFTA, um, U.S., Mexico, and Canada, have been disadvantaged by this deal. The only people who are benefiting from this this deal are the global corporations. Um, if you have the good fortune of being in the, the, the 1%, um, or being, um, directly, uh, able to ride along that wave with the corporations, the NAFTA looks really great. Um, but for the vast majority of people in all three countries, it has spelled greater precarity, uh, lesser protections, uh, for us as workers, as consumers. Um, less mobility, um, less, uh, access to, um, the, the, the systems of production and the decision-making about how those systems work. Um, and in fact, uh, worse health because the health of, of all three countries has declined. Um, that's so even though in the United States, I mean, I live in the Northeast, and I love eating berries in the winter. And I know, without NAFTA, um, I wouldn't have access to so much of the delicious produce that makes my diet healthier and more nutritious than it would be otherwise. Um, but overall, we can see that this these sorts of arrangements are not made with our best interests at heart. And so when we see how this sort of thing gets played out, in the media with the current renegotiation of NAFTA. um, It's being framed in such a way that it's seen as a zero-sum game in which um, the U.S. has to win over the other countries. But the U.S. has been a bully all along in this process. Um, And it's been a bully emboldened by its uh, sidekicks, which are the U.S. corporations that have been egging on a policy that really is not to the advantage or for the well-being of, of most of us
0: across the book a, a vision emerges of of an alternative way of imagining how to construct policy um and you know a, a few key terms that you're using are subsistence agriculture sustainability social w- welfare and a, and a concern for the public health mm-hmm. do you see any possibility for the realization of this vision, any sense where a light shines?
1: Well, I think the first step, if we have any hope of achieving that vision is is greater awareness. Um, there are people working in, in food sovereignty and labor justice, food justice movements, um, but we don't see uh, the dot connecting that we need to see if we're going to really have um, as a population A concept of how these things affect our everyday lives and what the real ethical issues are at stake Um, and the life or death issues for many of us um, that are at stake. And I think if we're aware of how these things are intertwined, um, the reason I wrote this book was precisely for that purpose, to try to spread some of that awareness, because I you know, I shop at farmer's markets and I subscribe to newsletters that talk to me about food justice. Um, but so often their analysis stops at the border. We don't see, uh, or understand how our food system is so, uh, symbiotically connected across borders. And even if we just take the route that many people advocate of trying to eat local, um, we miss, uh, a a big portion of what's happening, um, and how, and how most people are getting their food, um, because eating local is not an option for, for enough people. Um, and so I think if we have a concept of how these things do intersect across all of these seemingly unconnected terrains, right. The trade policy, um, uh, politics surrounding migration, public health, um, food and the joy of eating and and cultural foodways. um if we can connect all of those dots then we have a much better chance of demanding um a vision for a renegotiation of NAFTA and other policies that actually does take our well-being to heart that actually does look out for opportunities to create greater sustainability greater attachment to the land and um among people so that we um aren't blind to the, to the interconnections, um, that bring food to our plates, but rather see it as an extension of the same love and joy that we might have when we sit down at a table with loved ones, we can extend that back all the way to, to how food is produced and, and the histories of food, why we eat what we eat and how we would like to be eating. Um, if we had a food system that was structured in a way to, um, to give us the, the, these things that, that we've kind of stopped demanding because we've been convinced that we can't get them anymore.
0: That's really powerfully said. Thank you. Yeah. So, so one in in a future presidency, I would love for you to be on the cabinet. (laughs) <laughs> and two i wonder if we could we could yeah. go back to the plate as another way of entering into the issues that that you're exploring in this book which is to say that that you look at this other phenomenon which is the rise of mexican food as a haute cuisine Mm -hmm. And so so now a lot of us are looking at our plates and thinking we're eating Mexican cuisine, which you already say is a kind of misunderstanding of the regional cuisines that that exist throughout Mexico. Um, Mm -hmm. But but there's a paradox there that you're interested in that that most of us have experienced in the last 20 years. Mm
1: hmm. Yes. um, I was trying to make sense of it because at the same time that I was noticing in so many of my friends' uh, households back in Mexico, a decline in the consumption of tortillas, a decline in the kinds of um, slow food that people grew up eating. um, I started to see these foods suddenly appearing in New York City and at a very steep price point. And I started hearing about how Rene Redzepi, the famed chef of Noma in Copenhagen, Denmark, um, was studying the tortilla and hand grinding corn and then charging, um, I believe he charged $600 a meal for the pop-up when he set up a pop-up in Mexico based on this kind of cuisine. I started to see this incredible luxe um, elite foodie uh, universe focusing on foods, not just Mexican food broadly defined, but very specific milpa-based foods. Right, the corn and squash and beans and chiles, and and the and the techniques for hand grinding the corn um, and using different heirloom varieties of corn. I started to see these things suddenly become a luxury item, um, and I was curious how that how to reconcile these two seemingly contradictory trends. Um, and it it finally occurred to me that one is one depends on the other. You can't charge a high price for heirloom corn tortillas um, that have been nixtamalized and in mineral lime and ground. Um, and hand-formed and, and made on a comal, you can't charge a high price for those if everybody's still eating them, right? So this is the historic food that people of the countryside ate. Um, and there because people are no longer able to eat that way as much, um, it's falling out of reach. Um, it makes it available. It, it shifts it into um, the more exclusive terrain of, of elite, um, global cosmopolitan food practices. And so people like Rene Redzepi can say things like, no one appreciates the tortilla, which is one of the things he said. Um, I don't know who he means by no one, but, um, I do know that he, um, remarked that he felt that tortillas were underpriced, undervalued, um, economically. And while I applaud, um, Mexican cuisine being given the same respect that any other um, cuisine as art um, gets, right? There's nothing um, less sophisticated about Mexican cuisine compared to French, for example. Um, While I applaud it being given respect, there's something about the speculation, um, the sort of um, stratospheric, um, rise in prices and insertion into this very elite subculture of of food pra- practices um, that really exemplifies for me how far it's gone from being the food of humble people in the countryside in Mexico.
0: So one of the things that you point out a, a couple of times in the book is that you're looking at, at the case of NAFTA and, and just basically laying out what's happened in the, the last few decades um, from what's happening on the ground to what's happening among policymakers and government brokers and corporations and uh, companies and medical practices, all of this coming together. Um, but you also see it as indicative of globalization itself. There's a wonderful phrase where you say that NAFTA is basically globalization gone wild and, um, mm-hmm. And so, so can you tell us a little bit about how it is that you see NAFTA as perhaps a symptom um, or a case of something that we're seeing everywhere? Like, What do we learn by seeing it there or how is it that this becomes our best scenario for understanding what we're doing on a global level when we talk about globalization?
1: Absolutely. Um, a lot of these trends are definitely not unique to Mexico. I'm interested in this specific story that um, that I'm telling in terms of the Mexican countryside. But when I first started researching the book for a moment, I thought, well, maybe I need to expand and also talk about, how, uh, about what's happening in Chile. Chile took Mexico's number one spot for obesity. Mexico took it from the United States recently, we see um, in in Asia, we see in Africa, we see this proliferation of um, the so-called SAD, um, standard American diet, uh, based on these hyper-industrialized Foods, um, proliferating all across the world. And it goes hand in hand with the trade deals. Um, the trade deals do very specific things to dismantle any country's protection of its own agricultural producers. And it does, they do very specific things to promote foreign indir- foreign direct investment. And oftentimes the, the corporations that are quickest to take advantage of these new arrangements are the food and beverage corporations. Um, they swoop right in. And um, we can see a direct correlation between the rise of diet related illness and globalization over and over and over again. Um, And there are people who try to um, obfuscate this that try to say, you know, that the world's becoming more sedentary. Um, I've got teenage sons, they like to play video games, I don't see, um, you know, the the female uh, 20 to 40-year-old bracket um, playing video games, but that's where we see the highest rises in diabetes and obesity. Um, we see uh, just this incredible proliferation of diet-related illness. And so I think um, when we look at these uh, these trends globally, um, we have to look at what is contributing both in terms of this empowerment of the corporations to act in such an unfettered way, um, even, even in spite of growing awareness of how damaging their products are. Um, but we also have to look at and 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 what I do in the book is also look at what are the um, very specific local ideas, policies, arrangements, um, power dynamics that are contributing to the opening the door to all of this, right? Because um, there are countries that, that close the door. Um, Bolivia kicked out McDonald's, for example. Um, you know, we famously saw McDonald's um, be the target of vandalism in France. Um, you know, there are places that are trying to uh, shut the door on this kind of global um expansion and development. Um, but who, which countries are able to do that? Which countries, um, have the, the power to push back and which countries see themselves as obliged to adopt these kinds of arrangements? Um, just to give an example, Mexico used to have very robust, um, prohibitions on certain kinds of chemicals used in agriculture um they resembled the european community which is famously very restrictive um in the european community you have to um prove that a chemical is safe before you're allowed to use it in agriculture. In the United States, it's the opposite. It has to be proven unsafe before it can be removed from the market. It's used until proven unsafe. Um, When Mexico got into NAFTA with the United States, we made them adopt our regulatory framework for chemicals. So They lost a lot of the protections that their population had against some of these chemicals that we now see um, study after study pointing to as carcinogenic and producing um, kidney disease, for example. Mexico has a really high rate of um, idiopathic uh, kidney disease, ki- kidney disease that, that comes from nowhere, that in theory from nowhere, um, that is plaguing uh, anybody who lives near or works in agriculture. Um, a, a, and uh, you know, not people without a genetic predisposition. Um, so these kinds of plagues of, of development um, that are really harming people globally, um, but we have to understand what happens specifically so that we can start addressing it with very specific policy um, counter uh, counter policies, counterbalancing um, strategies uh, to try to limit the, the health consequences and social consequences of these of these arrangements.
0: Thank you for that answer. Thank you. I th- I think before I want to ask you where you where your thinking has evolved to now after finishing this book and and what you're doing. Um, to just since you you brought us back to NAFTA and we're at this moment, um, one of the the accomplishments of the book is its intricacy and its care and its attention to to details that are both macro and micro um, and and you lay out a picture um, of, of what's happening for the listener of, of this podcast who will no doubt you know be getting out of the car or going from the gym or something like that and then will start to hear the debates again what sh- what could he or she hold in his or her mind to kind of keep some sanity about what's happening. Um, I'm just trying, because the I'm trying to, to turn to you as someone who's seen it and understands it. Um, and for those of us that, that might not have the time to make sense of all the social policy, what is the counter vision we should have of NAFTA as we begin hearing all the, the talking heads again?
1: yeah um well, I mean let's face it, I think we're all a little bit fatigued and we might all feel right now like we're having to juggle um, uh, information coming at us from all sides and, and a level of unpredictability um, and instability in in the policy, landscape in washington every politically everywhere um so i i can't pretend to have achieved any sort of
0: (laughs) no no but in (laughs) this case you have truth and fact and goodwill Um, and virtue on your side and so i would just kind of (laughs) 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 those are so rare
1: well thank you um i wish it weren't um i I think what we need to do is just ask ourselves in every given context, how is this working for me? How is this working for other people who are trying to make a living, who are trying to, you know, be healthy and happy and provide for their family? And I think that in so many of these issues, whether we're talking about environmental regulation, whether we're talking about trade, whether we're talking about health policy, um, the thing that keeps coming back is the way that corporations are manipulating the process, even manipulating our political process to try to assert their agenda and keep us from paying attention to how they've taken away our, our protections, the regulations um, that govern their practices. Um, And they're seeking to operate in an unfettered way. And so when we hear about NAFTA or X policy. It could be any policy. We need to ask ourselves who was at the table when this was being discussed. Who's going to be at the table when it gets discussed tomorrow or the day after tomorrow? And how can we make sure that it's um, known that we care about these issues, that we understand that they're in connect- interconnected, and that we that they matter to us, right? So, um, for the for for my frame of analysis specifically, it's really important to me, um, that we think about the effects of our policies in the United States on the Mexican population. I feel that if people knew that we wouldn't operate in a completely, um, uncaring way, we would be concerned about the ripple effects. And we might even see some solidarity in the way that so many of us, um, are in the same boat, uh, globally, um, and being victimized by, um, these policies that don't put us at the center. And so when we talk to our elected officials or um, go to a town hall or go to a campaign event for a candidate, we can ask what are you going to do about the food system? What do you think about regulation of chemicals? What do you think about um, how, where are your priorities for the farm bill? Are we going to have a farm bill that keeps propping up uh, corn growers and soybean growers um, and producing an excess of those products um, that none of us E- need to eat very much of, or are we going to have a food farm bill that supports healthy eating, that supports nutrition and the well-being of rural communities as well as um, communities of eaters in cities and beyond? Um, we need to start asking those questions and connecting the dots and showing our the decision makers that we do know that these are dots that are connected. And I think as long as we're asking those questions, we're going to start to see better policy because there's going to be um, there's going to be a need to put people at the table who are asking um, these questions or pushing for these things if our democracy is what it, what, it, what it's called, if, it, if it's really a democracy.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Well, I, I would like to close our interview by asking you where where your thinking is going now, what projects you have ahead. I'm hoping that this book gets discussed far and wide, um, but I'm also curious as to to where you're looking in the future of your own work.
1: Yeah, well, um, you know, I, I started out as a scholar of migration, and I'm still a scholar of migration. And obviously, the current uh, migration policy um, landscape is horrifying. And so I'm doing some work thinking about that. Um, and some of the ways that it connects to this to this project is that I'm really thinking about what it is sort of in an ethical and theoretical sense, what it is that drives us to be concerned for, for the well-being of others? Um, what is it that any, that drives us to demand different kinds of policies, whether in the migration context or, or other contexts? Um, so related to this, when I was thinking about food policy and how, um, how NAFTA and how other things seem to pass by kind of not getting on the radar of most of us um, when they're being debated, I think also with migration policy, we see, you know, some people who are sitting in horror as we see the family separation, and some people somehow managing to go out, of, go on about their lives, um, as though nothing were going on. And so I'm curious, just in a theoretical sense, what is it that makes us say? you know what, this is, this is it. I've hit my limit and I need um, to demand a different kind of policy. I need this thing to stop. I need families to stop being separated or whatever the issue might be. Um, and so I'm curious about that. And I'm specifically curious about narrative. Um, I'm doing some writing about narrative and the use of narrative um, because I think that's something that's driven a lot of the um, immigrant rights activism Um, but I think there might be many of the activists I know seem to be finding, um, that narrative is limited, that it might evoke a a sympathetic response, but I'm not sure that it's the recipe for long-term change. Um, and that's something that I've been thinking about a lot.
0: I hope that when you're ready, you'll come back and talk to us about those projects.
1: Absolutely.
0: Alicia Galvez, thank you for being on the new books network.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure.
0: My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Alicia Galvez, author of Eating NAFTA, Trade, Food Policies, and the Destruction of Mexico, on the New Books
1: Network. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check.